You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. Good morning. Um, I'm Peter York, not Caroline Daniel, which is a sort of deficit on the internationalist front and the artistic front and all those other fronts. But I'll do my best to make it up to you. Um, My first lovely duty is to introduce Martin Davidson, who is CEO of the British Council. His predecessor was called Director General. And the fact that name change marks one very important thing about the British Council, namely its increasing scale and its increasing independence from central government. In other words, it's an increasingly independent, very large third sector institution. We've been hearing about third sector institutions. There's one, Martin. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Um, it's a great pleasure um, to be here at Names Not Numbers and to introduce Aminata Fauna and Esther Freud. Um, from the devil that danced on the water to the forthcoming the hired man, Aminata's writing is an examination of the way the public and private histories intertwine. She's also been a very welcome contributor to the work of the British Council, most recently at the Valberg Seminar in 2010. Esther's literary career began with Hideously Kinky, a record of her own dislocated childhood. The fundamental quest to discover one's place in the world is a thread that runs through many of her subsequent books. And it was a delight that uh, Esther was able to join us at a literature seminar in Berlin earlier this year for a discussion of Lucky Break. They are two very different writers, and the literary territories they explore are quite distinct. But disconnections of various kinds are common to both. The disconnections between good intentions and real life, between governments and citizens, between our actual and our imagined selves. Those big questions, how do we find our way home? How do we live a better life? Are all about reconnecting with our happier natures. Many of us here are practitioners of what might be called the connecting professions, education, the arts, journalism, politics. The connecting professions may not resonate with the public in the same way as the caring professions, but they're just as essential to our existence. Try to imagine life without them, or read The Devil That Danced on the Water. The connections we make in life, whether public or personal, are not sticking plasters on a larger and important structure. They are the structure. Without them, there is nothing that any of us would recognise as society. In the British Council, we exist to create international connections. Our business is cultural relations. The areas we work in, education, our language, the arts, allow us to encourage confident and open engagement between people and peoples. The habit of engagement is essential if we are to tackle the problems facing the global society to which all of us belong. And that's why, for us, being involved with Names Not Numbers pretty much from the beginning has been so important. We've connected with you in New York, in Mumbai, and now in the very fruitful, if slightly different, climate of Alderborough. And that's why I'm delighted to be able to introduce this Creative Connections session, the writers Esther Freud and Minata Fauna, in connection and in conversation with Peter. Thank you very much indeed.
Now, I'm going to join you on the lovely Urkel meets Flintstones. I mean, they are fantastic, aren't they? Aren't they a gas? As people used to say, I allow myself very carefully because it's, it's a very um, symmetrical thing. Now, um, one thing about both Amanata and Esther, who, as you've heard, are British writers, and we'll come back to that thing of being a British writer, what, what it is, who the British Council is proud to show off to the world because that is what they do. That is one of the things they do. And making connection through our culture as well as other people's cultures. Um, one thing in common is that they both have a great hinterland there. And I'm not talking about the Suffolk coast, though it turns out where they both got the Suffolk coast in their background, the hinterland of the world, of parentage, of experience. You know, it's something I contrast with my own. Now, you talk about dislocations and disconnection. I know my place, British North West London. But, um, uh, you know, um, Amanata's African connections, which you can read about in her books, and I'm sure you have, link back way, way back into another world. Esther's own generation links back to another, a pre-war Europe, an incredible and lost generation, um, very largely, through her father, Lucien, who is a sort of, was a sort of one-man hinterland, and it makes it extraordinary thing. So they both are the world and reflect the way this country almost uniquely is the world, and particularly in London, at the, at the extraordinary social mix that is London. And they are the world, going back to the world through the medium of being a British writer. So I'd like to ask you both to start to consider in what ways you are and aren't British writers, or whether there is a, such a thing as a British writer. <laughs> Um, it's so interesting. I mean, I suppose when I began writing, I wasn't thinking of myself as a writer or as anything. But one of the wonderful things about writing is you do discover um, what you're interested in and sort of, and, and, and to some respect, who you are. Um, and you draw on all sorts of things that you have at your fingertips. Um, and I found that it did seem incredibly lucky that the more I looked into it, the more I had to draw on from my father's heritage and my mother too, who was from Ireland, and then my sort of peripatetic childhood, um, you start to, the things that you've maybe thought of as being difficult in your life suddenly seem like a great gift. And it is one of the, the real lucks of being a writer is that you can always use everything. And I say use because when I think about creativity, I think about making things and I think about using things. And it's, 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 I'm so much happier when I'm in the process of writing a novel because everything I do and see, I'm thinking of it as being kind of transferred to some melting pot of, of, of my making. And as, as a child, I always wanted to make something. And as a writer, I feel that is what I do. So, but it, it feels to me that that is what being British is. Certainly, it's what being a Londoner is. I don't think it's what being a Suffolk person is. We were talking about this last night. And... Um, so that's, that's why I feel so Britishness London, and Londonish is slightly different. London is more hinterlandy, more melting potish, 
yeah. all together yes. than the Suffolk coast. Aminata. <laughs> um, yes, I, I agree about London. I moved to London actually just to go to university and I stayed and I'd actually, I grew up all around the world. Um, my father's Sierra Leonean, my mother was Scottish, um, but my mother remarried a New Zealander who was a diplomat for the United Nations. Um, and so I spent part of my childhood also in Zambia and Thailand and in, living in Iran. So, um, and I went to a, um, a um, corrective institution for 12 years in the British countryside called Malvern Girls College. And then I went to university in London. And um, I never thought that I would stay in London, actually. I sort of thought that I'd live rather like my parents did. I'd move countries. And then... Um, one way or another, uh, combined with marrying an Englishman, I found myself staying in London. And then London began to change and change and change. And actually, after about 15 years, I stopped moaning about the fact we were still living in London and decided that actually this was the place I wanted to be because everything was in it. And you know, everything, meaning the world, was represented in London. But I, I do think of myself as a British writer. I think of myself as a British and Sierra Leonean writer. And then... But I, I get asked so many questions about identity. I keep thinking, who is so anxious about this? Because I'm not that anxious. Um, uh, but, uh, and I, I think, uh, particularly I do, become a, a sort of flashpoint for a lot of other people's anxieties about their own identity. Because they kind of think, gosh, if I feel this way, how does she feel? Um, but the other day, I, I was in... Which newspaper? I think it was... Guardian, I'd have to look, described me as British-based of Sierra Leonean heritage. And I thought, what are they saying? It's like they're sort of trying to say anything but she's British. <laughs> and um, I do feel British and I feel Sierra Leonean as well. And, um, I, but I think the way that, that that heritage, including the Iran and Thailand bit... Um, is reflected in my writing, is that I do consciously write for multiple audiences. I don't just write for a British audience or a Western audience. I do consciously write from, for multiple audiences. And I do, when I read my work through, when I'm creating characters, I like to reverse the gaze a lot um, and then read my work from multiple perspectives. So that in The Memory of Love, for example, there's an Englishman called Adrian who goes to Sierra Leone, and his story is told through his own voice. And then you also so you, you see the country and the people through him, and then there's a character called Kai Mansare, who's a Sierra Leonean surgeon, and it switches the perspective so that you see Adrian and the way that he is reacting to this country through the perspective of Kai Mansaray. And I think in, in The Hired Man, again, I reversed the gaze. It's the, it's, I've moved to Croatia, but again, looking at the themes of war, civil war and what it does, and the gaze uh, that I invite the, audience, the reader to share is from the Croatian um, handyman looking at the English family who, who come to stay. Um, I'm going to introduce... a. I'm going to lower the tone and I'm going to introduce a word I always find terribly upsetting, but you're all grown-ups. Creativity. Um, you know, creativity. What's that about? What is it? Is it a thing that writers have and bucket designers don't have? Or what is creativity? And 
How do you get in touch with it? How do you get it? <laughs> <laughs> it worked last time, but this time I think surely. <laughs> I mean, the way I do it is I, I spend about 10 years alone in a room. That's what I do. Um, I, and I did recommend this. I teach creative writing, actually. I'm a professor at Bath Spa University, newly. And when my students come to me, I say, you, you know, go and lock yourself in a room for 10 years, and that way you may find something to say. <laughs> and I think, actually, about writing in particular, but, but maybe a lot of, a lot of the... Hmm, I'm trying to think on my feet, actually, because I think about probably the same is true of fine art or sculpture or music... I think wanting to be alone uh, has a great deal to do with it. And I, there's a wonderful sentence by Paul Klee talking about drawing, and he says, I take a line for a walk. And to me, that's exactly what writing is. I take a thought for a walk. It's just that my walks go on for a very long time. You know, but I, I, I tend to start with a thought and try to take it as far as I possibly can. Um, and if I think about the thoughts that... Well, I could talk maybe a little bit about the thought that started The Hired Man. I was in Sierra Leone and I was having dinner, lunch at a restaurant, and there were about four or five Sierra Leoneans sitting at the same table and two English people, and I was invited to join them. And afterwards, one of the Sierra Leoneans said to me, could you please not mention to so-and-so that I was sitting with so-and-so? And I said, oh, why? And he said, oh, because of such-and-such. And I said, oh, yes. And then I drove away. And the thing he was referring to that was that one person in the table had been accused of a series of murders. And we all knew this. But time had passed. And the thing about civil war, the thing about civil conflict is you never get away from, the, you never get away from it. It just carries on echoing and reverberating back and forth all the time. And so I... Uh, I, w I drove away and I thought, God, it's so weird. I just sit at a table with somebody who's been accused of these murders. And, but so have many of the country. You know, so have so many of the country. And then a while later, one of the English people came up to me and said... Uh, actually, he was one of Blair's advisors. You know, he, Blair's got this mm. governance thing. And he said to me, oh, well, you know, I met you at lunch the other day. What a nice group of people. And I thought, oh, well, you didn't even know there was an elephant in the room. <laughs> and so I, that's where the hired man came from. What's it like to go to a country which has been through something, but you don't know what everyone's... All the connections everyone's making, the looks, the whispers, you're not reading them, but it's all happening around you. You're walking on eggshells all the time. Esther. It's very interesting, because in a way what you're saying is taking something and making it into something else. And I think it's what I was just touching on um, when I spoke before about, um, you know, the sort of joy of making something. Um, I always... For me... I mean, I had the example of my father who, when I was a child, I used to go and visit his studio, and he was... His studio just was... It's where he lived, and all there was there was a, a bed, a, a cooker, and various canvases on easels. And when I was quite young, I always used to feel embarrassed for him because they were often the same easels there month after month sometimes year after year and I think god it's so awful he's still working on that picture god that one's even slightly further back than when I last saw it <laughs> and I sort of just stand there thinking oh 
poor dad. But um, I also saw that he'd made a world for himself that was completely engrossing and protected him from absolutely everything. And I always wanted that for myself. I wanted to find something that meant that that's who I was. And um, it, it was such a strange thing. I, I used to look around me and be amazed that people could just be themselves. I used to think I need to be um, you know, in the circus or a farmer. I had various plans. And um, I never thought I could be a writer because I struggled hugely with literacy as a child. I didn't learn to read till I was nearly 11. Um, and, but I wanted to sort of be the maker. I saw what, what he had. And um, I trained as an actress thinking that that was sort of, in a way, a world to disappear into, a completely safe place. And it was, in a way. But then there were all these moments where you were waiting for someone to tell you that you could start. And I found that the opposite of creative. In fact, it sort of felt like it was killing creativity because you were a sort of empty vessel waiting for someone to sort of say go. Um, and, but then when I started to write, I did it very much as, as sort of a secret thing. I didn't tell anyone I was writing because I'd heard so many people say, oh, I'm writing a novel. It's to strike me fear into my heart that they wouldn't do it. But I, but I, so I did this very quietly. But um, I felt like I got that thing that he'd got a completely secret, safe, nourishing part of yourself. And it is, it is true, and it feels just the same. But then as the years went by, and I'd think, oh, he's, God, he's so fast. He's finished another painting, because I realized that nothing's as slow as writing a novel. And um, I do sometimes, as I'm sitting you know, endlessly, year after year in my desk, sort of hunched over. It's amazing the hours that can go by. And, you know, I talking about domestic help in the last session. You know, I've had the same lady who comes in and tidy, helps you know, tidy my house for, I think, 16 years. And I think, what must she must think? She probably thinks, poor woman. <laughs> she's just still sitting there. <laughs> and sometimes she's like knocking on the door, asking, would she like, you know, to try and distract me to come and see how shiny the, <laughs> the windows are now. Um, so I, but I feel very, very blessed that I, that I have that in my life. And in just, in, you know, I was just thinking the other day, I read, I was re researching a book which I'm writing now, which is set in Suffolk, in fact. And um, I was looking up things to do, it's a historical book. And, and I saw this memoir piece that someone had written, and it was on the internet from years ago. And it was about him as a young boy walking through the flooded land um, where the water had come in over the beach and feeling fish in the mud under his feet, in sharpening a stick and stabbing them. And I thought, oh, yes. And you know, immediately I took that three or four lines and you know, a whole chapter evolved. It's like just the joy of that. I thought, nothing has made me so happy this week. <laughs> so. Quentin Crisp once said of his landlady that she would say when she saw him either writing or reading waiting <laughs> because she didn't think either was an activity in itself now um, there are those things about you, you said i mean uh, uh, you limbered up to be a writer uh, by sitting in a darkened room for 10 years well i was writing actually you were actually doing yeah, the writing doing the nothing you were talking yes. about I, I was it yeah i was writing people love to hear about 
how writers who do proper writing and get published and everything, their rituals and how they do it. And I suspect it's very different from journalism. I don't, I don't want, again, I don't want to lower the tone excessively. What, <laughs> what, where horrible pressures are on you of a, the basest kind. But what are, what are your rituals? What has to be in place? Where do you have to be? Do you have to have um, a feng shui of the immediate room to make it work, or what? I don't really need anything. I mean, I tell myself I do, and I can fetishise all kinds of things about the way I write. I wanted my room to be a particular kind of yellow. When I finally got the room in the house that I had been lobbying for for some time, it had to be painted print room yellow, right? Um, I wanted a view, I, I have a mug that I really like, and if I can't find it or my husband takes it, I get really upset with him, right? And I say, I want my mug. And he just goes, what is so important about this mug? I said, it just doesn't matter. Just, you know, I don't want to have a discussion about it. I just want the mug. <laughs> so I've got all these things. And then I... And then actually, um, what I realise is when I... I love, as Esther was saying, I love it so much that I'm actually really happy. If I just do not worry about the mug and the colour of the walls and start writing wherever I am, hours will pass. And I've now learned that this is the best way of getting through a flight in cattle class. <laughs> Absolutely the best way. I was once on a flight all the way from London to Australia. And they put me on this cheap flight and it was Air Brunei. And I didn't realise that Air Brunei was a dry airline. <laughs> So when the drinks trolley came round, nothing but orange juice. And I thought, oh, no, I've got hours and hours of this. What would I do? And so I decided I will do the thing I'm always telling myself I will do, and I will write on a flight. And of course, I was sitting in this long row, because they put me in a cheap seat. And I um, don't think it was the British Council, but anyway, I was in a cheap seat. And I thought, I'm just going to do the thing that I say I will do. And I had, had a short story rather like your father's paintings that had been going in and out of my mind for quite a long time. And I sat down and I simply wrote the whole short story on that flight. And it was just the best thing. First of all, the flight went by like that. Right? It was, you know, I was off board in a moment. But also it got nominated for an award, so that was really nice. <laughs> I felt like time well spent. So I don't really need anything, even though there are things I tell myself I need, and I kind of like to have the dog, the view, the print room yellow, the mug, um, a great big cafeteria of black coffee, but really I don't need anything. Yeah, I think I do, but that's very inspiring. I have sort of, I sort of program myself, tomorrow I'm going to write. If I haven't said tomorrow I'm going to write, I probably won't. But if I have, nothing will stop me. It's very strange. I sort of become almost de demented at the fact that I've said tomorrow I'm going to write and someone's, you know, trying to distract me from it or something happens. Um, that's sort of mostly what I need to write is my decision that I'm going to write. Um, I'm very obedient to the orders. Um, but... I like to write in the morning. I feel like I have a completely different morale in the afternoon. In the morning, I feel strangely optimistic. And so I'm quite scared of writing in the afternoon because if I read 
I always start by reading what I've written over the last few days, um, or the last page, or sometimes right to the beginning if I'm feeling really kind of lost. Um, and if I read it at the wrong time of day and it's terrible, it puts me into such a deep, you know, gloom. Whereas in the morning, I think, oh, blimey, did I write that? And I kind of carry on. And so I'm quite careful about not writing at the wrong time. But I'm probably too careful. I probably could manage an awful, to get an awful lot more done if I just, you know, told myself to buck up and look. So what if it looks terrible? Carry on anyway. <clears throat> um, but I, I tend to, you know, start in the morning and, and I'm really strict about that because I have this idea I can't. But if I'm writing a piece of journalism, then I don't have the same precious idea about it. I think it's just work. Um, and it's up to me. I sort of feel as if almost like I have more control over it. So I could start any time of the day. Um, whereas, whereas a novel, I sort of feel almost like it's something slightly not completely to do with me, that it has control over me. So it's different. I think that's, also, that's true. I have writing days. Um, and actually, sometimes weeks and months. I mean, I have to clear time, and I quite deliberately clear time, and I won't take any speaking engagements or anything. Um, I hardly go out to, to dinner. Um, but certainly if it's a writing day, because obviously there's some things, some life admin that you can't just not do, you know, if your tax return is due or whatever, you've just got to do it. But um, certainly in a week, I will set aside days that are just for writing, and I won't do anything else in them. And I get very growly if anyone rings up during that time, you know. Um, so that certainly happens. I had to go and see the Queen, and she asked me the same question. So I told her I had writing days too. And she said, ooh, I suppose today was a writing date, was it? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, no, don't worry, you're not interrupting anything. Today was never going to be <laughs> a writing day. But I, I, I think that one of the... I suppose if I, when I have students, um, I really, really... I mean, I know most of you in the room probably do it really well. I do not multitask. I will not multitask. Right. I just don't... I mean, first of all, I don't really believe it works. I just don't believe anyone can split their heads. But if they can, that's wonderful. I certainly can't. I do one thing at a time, and the thing that I do is right, and that's it. I don't try... I don't take on loads and loads of other things. I just write. I think you have... I mean, writers have... People always talk about, oh, you must be so disciplined. You think, well, yeah, I mean, everyone has a job. You know, you just... It's just a matter of discipline that you just switch off your phone. I mean, I just don't go on my email when I'm writing. I don't find it that hard, but I have to say I'm not linked in with technology in the way that I know most people are. I'm not a Facebook or a Twitter. I don't know why. So I feel, in a way, maybe I'm just lucky that it hasn't pulled me. It makes me... They'd wash, the, well, they'd wash the kitchen floor or they'd raid the fridge or mm. they'd find some other way of being distracted from writing and now everybody's on Twitter, you know, or Facebook. Yeah, it's, it's, always, been, it's always been hard to discipline yeah. yourself and there's always something that you'd like to do. Um, it's just, yes, I don't think writers probably are less disciplined. They just, they seem to... I mean, actually, the number of writers on Facebook chatting to each other while they should be writing is something else, I have to say. <laughs> we're all there, and we look like we're working. But husbands walk in the door. <laughs> all fine. Um, but... 
And I do play around on Facebook quite a lot. And actually, I find Facebook very reassuring because there are lots of other writers there and we can have little conversations about writing. And you don't feel so isolated. And also, you don't have to go out and see anybody, so it's quite time-saving. <laughs> you, you can just chat to them on Facebook. So I'm actually fine about Facebook. And I do say I'm now no, no longer looking at Facebook. But also, I have my displacement activities like... Um, they're not time. I, I actually believe I'm not wasting time when I'm washing the kitchen floor or raiding the fridge or playing on Facebook. I have my little displacement activities. And um, other things are happening, you see. Other things are happening. I have a friend, she's also published by Bloomsbury, Katie Hickman. And she once told me, rather like your lady who cleaned for all the years for you, and I, I have a cleaning lady who I have for the same reason. She never, ever talks to me. She never talks to me. And Casey said that she had the same with the nanny, that when she came out of her room to make her, uh, go and make a coffee, this woman knew not to talk to her, because it didn't... Just because she was there didn't mean she wasn't actually ruminating. And so I don't... I mean, I certainly don't find the... I don't find the social media such a distraction, although I've never really quite got Twitter. I... I sort of try and send out a tweet once a month or so. I don't think that's really the way you're supposed to use it. But um, I think it's the telephone, I think, is the thing I find most, because it interrupts you as opposed to the other way around. You know, I can use my discipline not to go on Facebook, but the telephone is a different thing, and I just put it out the wall. <laughs> um, just Charlie Ledbeater. Um, I was very struck... I've got two questions. One is, I was very struck by Esther's phrasing where she said I'm very happy to have this in my life this space to write which sort of implies that it's not life it's in your life and there's another bit of life that's going on and I'm just so one question would be if it were all of your life would it be intolerable in other words do you need all sorts of other things in your life which are not this all-consuming thing and then the second thing is that as a non-fiction writer, the thing that I most am most fascinated by is not the routines, but is how, by going into yourself, you make connections with other people who may, in fact, be completely imaginary. Because the, one of the greatest challenges in all walks of life is how you establish empathy with people. And you're constantly, it seems to me, if you're writing fiction, sort of trying to generate empathy virtually out of nothing. And I'm just wondering if that just happens or whether you have techniques for doing that, you know, ways that you can work your way into a character or whether it's just something that is un completely unselfconscious. Now, if you can deal with Charlie's very caring questions in a, a, a brief manner, then we can have one more question, which is the lady here, and then... Alas, because we're slightly truncated, not our fault. Um, uh, then we have to wind up and go to the cinema. Is that right? We go to the cinema, yes. Briefly, um, I don't actually ever have writing days, unless I'm editing. When I'm writing, I, I don't ever do more than about four hours, because, and I think of it as a sort of pool in my day, and then all the other things that I have to do around it. But I do like it like that. I don't get any more done in a whole day. And I find it absolutely exhausting if I go on and I don't write as well the next day. So I'm quite strict 
with starting, but I'm quite strict with stopping, even if it's going well. So. Um, well the, I'll take the second question, which was about um, creating people who don't exist. The other thing I say, when I say to my students, you want to have to live in a room for 10 years, I also add, with people who don't exist. Um, because you do have to be prepared to create these people and then live with them for a long time. And I do find myself quite often thinking about what they're doing. And um, is it, I think, came across a phrase, I forget where, but it struck me because they were talking, it was a comment on a particular man, and it said he had no ability uh, to live outside himself. And it meant that he couldn't imagine what it was like to be anybody else. And I, when I was a journalist, the thing I loved best, the just bestest thing, was that we could go into other people's lives and ask them all sorts of questions about themselves. Mm. Um, and you know, we could I could live them for a day. Um, so what I like about writing is being able to live somebody for a day, and I, or a year, or two years, or three years, or ten. And I do walk in my characters' shoes a lot. I go to the places they go to. I do the job they do. Um, you know, I really do walk in their shoes a lot. So I think you, for me, I think you may, may, it may start with an ability to think outside yourself, which some people, I know people who don't have it, that's for sure, and people who do have it. But maybe it's about then taking that to its logical conclusion, or as far as you can. I think that there's one from American horror films where children say... I talk to dead people. <laughs> uh, lady here, final question. It's not, it just, it's not a question, but it's a tiny observation. Mary Loudon, also an author. Um, when going back to the questions about creativity and things that Esther was saying about taking a line for a walk and taking a thought for a walk, um, there was a wonderful um, thing said by a sculptor once, and I wish I could... Um, I wish I knew who it was, but I don't. I can't remember. But he was asked, how do you know you have this lump of marble? How do you know how to, to sculpt an elephant? And he said, I just chip away the bits that aren't the elephant. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the definition of creativity, and it's no easier than that to explain. That was just a thought. Well, there you are. Are you sure it wasn't Dame Elizabeth Frink? It, so many things go back to Dame Elizabeth Frink. <laughs> There you are. Um, uh, anyways, uh, thank you very much for sharing uh, the creative life. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.